This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name's Stephen Forzia. My name's Andrew Carroll. Today we are discussing South African cult favourite Shato Copley. Andrew, run down the history. Charlotte Copley was born in 1973 in Johannesburg in South Africa. He met Neil Blomkamp at a young age and together they catapulted to stardom with District 9 in 2009. He went on to play Howling Mad Murdoch in the 2010 A-Team remake. 2013 was Copley's biggest year as he appeared in Europa Report, Elysium, the Old Boy remake. <laughs> and Open Grave. Uh, he is often experimental as in his performance in Chappie. Chappie! And the POV style <laughs> Hardcore Henry. It's going to be a lot of South African accents in this. More recent films include Ben Wheatley's Free Fire, Nash Edgerton's Gringo, and Olivier Megaton's The Last Days of American Crime. He's, yeah, he is due to play oh, Ted Kaczynski, better known as the Unibrommer, in Ted K this year. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's going to be intense. Yeah, it will. Yeah. And we're joined by a special guest, the first person in I Know That Face history to join the Two Timers Club. Yeah. Where's my blazer? Teacher, <laughs> writer, stand-up comedian, Sean Mariotti. Hi, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, you recently were on the uh, best of list for Head Stuff. You wrote about Parasite for the films and Mandalorian mm. for TV. I did two completely different things, like yeah. Parasite and Mandalorian. It's the Moriarty to our homes in Watson. <laughs> <laughs> um, you were on for Carl Urban, and not long after you appeared, you pitched us on Copley. What is it about Copley you uh, think is so interesting? He's very experimental with his roles. Like yes. I don't even think you can like you could find a recurring thing between each of his characters he's always doing something different and he's always experimenting and sometimes it works in his favour and sometimes it, oh boy yes <laughs> but um, I found he very, plays very unhinged characters or characters who either lose their humanity throughout the course of the film or in some way restore it and I wonder is that unhingedness part of the fact that he isn't a classically trained actor I think he always wanted to be an actor but he had pursued like a different career in sort of production side and then Neil Blomkamp just put a camera in front of him for the short yeah. movie Alive in yeah. Joburg and then that led to him being in District 9 and uh, he seems to really love acting but I, I do think that sort of untrained thing it can work so well because it, it makes a lot of his characters feel very unique and really yeah. like fresh and interesting like in District 9 or Free Fire I think and even stuff like The A-Team or I imagine Harker Henry which I haven't seen but you love yeah. but then <laughs> it can also backfire in movies like you know, the old boy remake. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, and also, like, he's a bit like Carl Urban, where I don't think we've covered many people on the show with such, like, stratospheric highs yeah. and such catastrophic lows, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, but will we get into the best of all time? Yeah. The original, yeah, yeah. District 9. Oh, amazing. You hear that? That's a popping sound that you're hearing. It's almost like a popcorn. Uh, what the egg does is it, 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 it pops up. You know, the little guy what's left of him pops up. For me, that's, like, Top five science fiction yeah. films ever made. I loved it when I first saw it, and I rewatched it again in the lead up to the podcast, and I loved it even more. What surprised me about it was that I watched it back way back when, when it came out. It was the first 15s rated movie I ever saw in a cinema. Oh, wow. And then. <laughs> that you felt great, like walking Yeah, in yeah, yeah. And uh, I felt even better walking out. Oh. And then 11 years later, I watched it again, and I was thinking, like, oh, it's probably not as good as I thought it was back then but it that movie fucking moves yeah, yeah like it was over within half an hour and it's nearly two hours long <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that's definitely one thing like it has a very kind of like he uh, Blomkamp and Copley have said like previously that it was a very grassroots production like it started off with Alive and Joe work the short film and the film feels very epic in scale even though it's quite like condensed in its budget and it's like setting 
yeah there's just something about like technically it's such a rich movie because it's sort of moving between like fan footage to like really expansive sort of like sci-fi because yeah. apparently Neil Blomkamp and Peter Jackson were working on a Halo movie and that fell through yeah he was basically like, what else are you working on? He's like, well, I have the short movie got Alive in Joburg and that gets expanded. So I can feel the sort of halo-ness in District mm, 9. Yeah, yeah. But also you have that fan footage stuff. You have this a lot of like surveillance camera, a lot of like, I think it's also like bits of like real footage in the movie just yeah, kind of yeah. uh, reappropriated. Yeah. Um, Blend of documentary style filmmaking, but then with the more kind of like conventional. Exactly. And yeah, it, like it, handheld footage of a riot, but there's just aliens in the middle of yeah, it all. Yeah, like yeah. The, <laughs> the prawns. <laughs> but it, it just makes everything feel um, so much more rich, especially like, it's sort of a premise that could be hard to buy, but like I don't know, it's the sci-fi movie, especially alien sci-fi movie that I'm like the most like, oh, this is probably what would happen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But then also it's such a and it's like a thematically rich movie because you've got all this commentary on like segregation and racism and like it's it references a real life place in South Africa, like District Six, which mm. was um, a similar sort of like shanty community that developed um, for migrants who were coming into South Africa yeah. and like. Just it's even the just so good. Yeah. Even the image alone of just the big UFO hovering over Johannesburg. Yeah. It's just we haven't seen that ever. Like before with uh, alien invasion movies, it's usually something like New York or like yeah, a more yeah, kind of exactly, urbanized yeah. environment. Mm. For those who haven't seen it, should I break down the plot a little bit? Go for it. Yeah. So in 1982, a massive starship bearing uh, a malnourished alien population nicknamed the Prawns, because uh, they look like prawns. <laughs> they look like prawns. Yeah. Appears over Johannesburg, South Africa, and then 28 years later, the initial welcome by the human population has faded, and the refugee camp where the aliens were located has deteriorated into this militarized ghetto called District Nine, where they are confined and exploited. And then in you know in 2010, the sinister corporation is contracted to forcibly evict the population uh, with the ineffectual, catastrophically clueless bureaucrat operative Vickers van der Moeve played by mm. Shadow Copley, in charge. And uh, not because he's qualified, just because uh, he's the boss's son-in-law. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, while he's doing this, Vickers is exposed to a strange alien chemical, um, which uh, leads to some crazy changes and must uh, rely on the help of his new two, you know, prawn friends. Yeah, yeah. I think his performance in that film, there's nothing show-offy about it at all. Like, Vickers just looks like a very ordinary guy you'd see, yeah. like, working in the ba- in, like, way in the back in your office yeah, and all yeah. that. And like, whereas if it was something like Tom Cruise, like a very distracting, <laughs> yeah, I'm not killing that prom, man. Yeah. <laughs> and he's also like a realistically bad person. Yeah, he's like a dirtbag. Yeah. yeah, he's an asshole because he he does it. He's so like horrible going around. Like anytime mm. he's trying to interact with the aliens, he's treating them with like so condescendingly. Yeah. And then the minute they like show like any sign of like dissatisfaction, he's just like gets his like goonies to pull yeah. guns on them. Yeah, yeah. There's even that bit where he. Burns alive like all the eggs. Yeah, popping like the popcorn. Yeah, it's like the popcorn. Like it's such a horrible like scene because he's like, and he even jokes about like it's an abortion. Yeah, but he says the thing about oh like it's they're popping like popcorn and it's like (laughs) such like a real thing like someone would actually say and Mm -hmm. it's not even that like he's purely evil. He's just like one of those people who is like he's not particularly smart person Mm -hmm. and I feel like he's never like interrogated what his job is (laughs) or like thought too deeply like he hasn't questioned anything and. Because he starts at such a low place and kind of continues it for a lot of the movie, then it makes that pivotal moment at the end of the movie when he decides to kind of commit like a selfless act. Like he fends off the um, attack from the military and like lets the aliens escape. Like, yeah. It feels really earned and you're like really happy so about it. So satisfying to watch. Yeah. yeah. Like, in yeah. Of, like in the back, you want some of this? You want some yeah. of this? <laughs> Just picking up a pig and <laughs> launching at a fella. <laughs> it's like when you get like the thunder gun in like Nazi zombies in college or something and you're just like all right here we go (laughs) 
But um, it's kind of funny, though, the thing that I noticed in that film that whenever he's referring to the prawns, he's usually referring them to them as bottom feeders or scavengers, mm-hmm. whereas he's exhibiting those characteristics exactly. way more yeah, than yeah, they are. Like, yeah. he's yeah. he's going into their huts, he's, like, touching all the alien equipment. Yeah, yeah. He's like, look at these, look at these. And he's, like, mm-hmm. showing off to the you camera. You the sweetie? Yeah. The sweetie man. Oh, the, the sweetie man. The alien throws the sweet and, his, and hits him in the eye. <laughs> and then he's like, you fucking prick. It's so funny. <laughs> I want to ask you this. Is... Copley exaggerating his South African accent in this because I was trying to work it out from interviews with him. I haven't watched, I have never seen him in an interview. But I feel like he is like heightening it a little bit. And what kind of made me believe that even more is that apparently the name Van der Merwe is a common surname in South African, but it's sort of yeah. a name that is construed as being like it's like a bit of a joke. Mm. Any kind of like clueless person, you'd yeah. be like, oh, well, Van der Merwe, yeah. you know, like it's like that. And so I think it's really funny that probably like people watching District 9 in South Africa, it's like, Vic is idiot. <laughs> you know? that, that was, do you think that was intentional on Blomkamp's part? Yeah, like he definitely. Wanted to make yeah. it Because it's, like, it's definitely a critique of yeah. like a certain strand of like, like, yeah, like white yeah. South Africans. And I think that even comes back up in Free Fire as well. Um, <laughs> also, how great is it like that so much of District 9 is improvised? That's yeah, yeah. yeah. especially for a film like that. And the guy, do you know at the start there's a guy they're interviewing um the prawns and all that yeah and he does just everything in the movie he's yeah. Jason yeah. Uh, Jason Cope he's all the aliens he does all the motion capture you, and all the yeah he's really good in those god shorts yeah he's the butler he is, yeah. I was like oh it's the guy from District 9 <laughs> the I think he's another part of like the group with uh, Neil and Shelto like I yeah. think they all kind of work together to kind of get the whole production I think he's in Chappie as well in like a small I think role. so yeah, yeah. Um, anything else about District 9 love such it. a great movie love it. Yeah. and how great was it nominated for best picture yeah, no, the, yeah. the first ever documentary style film to ever get yeah. nominated for Best Picture. I feel yeah. like it deserved Best Editing as well. It did, yeah, yeah, yeah it's true. It was such a weird because that was the first year where there were ten movies, I think, yeah. and it was Avatar was up that year as well. We, oh, I completely forgot about that. Yeah, it was up against Avatar and like two sci-fi movies. I, I think I had a similar experience to you when I remember coming out of District Nine. It was because it was around the same time as Avatar. I think Avatar Mob was like six months later, and. Like when Avatar came out, I was like, oh, District Nine's like the really interesting sci-fi movie. Like, yeah, Avatar is good. Like James Cameron, not his best. Whenever mm. like I'm, District Nine's the one that's really pushing boundaries, and I expected to rewatch it, being like, yeah, oh, you're such a dick, Stephen. Like <laughs> you just thought it was edgy because people get their heads blown off. And, like, he, he has like it turns into like the fly. For, like, <laughs> but um, no, it really holds up. It's so good, and it's on streaming on Netflix now. Mm. I think that Copley, Copley should have been in the talks for like a nomination for maybe Best Actor. I was I, thinking that. I too, was watching I an interview with uh, um, Docky's favorite person, Matt Damon. Oh yeah. And yeah. he said that, in his honest opinion, it was one of the great, overlooked performances of the last decade. Yeah. And he was like, "I don't even know why he wasn't nominated because," and that that kind of then led into the collaboration they did with uh, Elysium, yeah. which was Blomkamp's. Yeah. Do you want to? Will we take all the Blomkamp's kind of together? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Okay. So Elysium then. Yes. Yes, ma'am. I'm listening. I'm sorry that we crashed the vehicle and ruined someone's lawn. But nobody is going to hang us for treason. We do the hanging. I have written here, good, premise, social commentary, (laughs) special effects, bad. Sort of a dour movie. Like, it has two terminally ill main characters. Kind of a little too plot heavy. Very much so. Yeah. Uh, Jodie Foster's performance is completely ADR'd and feels really weird. Mm. But Copley's 
is kind of the only person. He is maybe, such a bastard in that film. Yeah, like him <laughs> and may, maybe like Wagner Moore, who I think is quite good in the movie. I think they're the only people who realize that this should be sort of Robocop or yeah, Total Recall. Yeah. Like it should be one of those like 90s sci-fis, which does say important things about the world, but isn't too like afraid to have fun yeah, and like yeah. have its cake and eat it too. Yeah, yeah. But I think my issue with Elysium is like I do think it's pretty good. Like it's a solid science fiction action thriller. But I think the issue is that it has all the ingredients for like a really, really good film, but like it quite literally takes too much time to get off the ground in terms of like getting up to like the city. Because like mm-hmm. you, you'd be led to think that the first half would be on Earth and then the second half is them infiltrating the ranks and trying to get there. But there's a lot more, there's a way more like drawn out reason as to why Matt Damon needs to get up there. Yeah. And you kind of feel like, just get to the point, like just get get there, get up to Elysium. But then it only happens like in the last act of the film mm-hmm. and it's only they're only up there for about, I'd say about 20 minutes. Yeah, I understand what you're saying because it gets kind of too caught up in like side missions and sort of like we have to get the thing to get to yeah, that thing yeah. and and you're a little bit like I would have just liked the action version of this, yeah, you know. Exactly. Not everything needs to be so complicated. Yeah. Uh to be honest, Chappie is more of what I want Blomkamp to be doing than Elysium because like while Chappie is certainly dumber <laughs> than <laughs> than Elysium and pales in comparison in pretty much every aspect to District 9, it's got all the world building and the robot effects he does so well. And it's got, like, personality. Like, mm. it's about a police robot forced to, or trained to think, with the personality of a child who's kidnapped by gangsters paid by popular Zeff artist D'Antwoord <laughs> in order so they can rob shit. And uh, I think it's cool that there's a big-budget South African sci-fi set movie where D'Antwoord's starring. <laughs> I think it got a really hard time like when it came out. Yeah. Like, people were way too harsh on it than it needed to be. It's not perfect. <laughs> it's um, highly derivative of other science fiction properties like there's the thing that Hugh Jackman has the moose the moose and the hoose oh yeah (laughs) but it um it looks way too much like the droid or the ed 209 from Robocop oh right okay I haven't seen this movie so I think another big issue for me was Deontford Ninja's quite bad I think Yolandi's really good at it I think everything to do with them just drags the film down I was but it's it's really confusing because they're playing themselves Mm, yeah and like their their headquarters and environment and everything to do with them is all like their merchandise and all their like designs <laughs> and I think afterwards uh, they tried to sue the f- production company because they didn't get any credit for designing their set mm. and they called them uh, lame fucks <laughs> <laughs> I only watched clips from Chappie to prepare for this I didn't rewatch it but I think it's funny that there's a scene where they're convincing Ch- Chappie to carjack for yeah. them and they carjack a car that's playing Babies on Fire <laughs> and it's like Babies on Fire exists in this world, <laughs> but you are not the musician who made it. Okay, weird. It's, it is very strange. Um, what do you think of Copley and Chappie? I think he's really fun. It's He's good, but he's kind of like too naive to like an un, uh, almost unbelievable degree. Like he's very... Well, the point is like Chappie is almost like a, a newborn baby and like he's very innocent and all that. And I think people would have preferred to have seen him kind of coming to understanding of the world, not throwing Ninja Death Stars at cars and like chucking people out of the cars. Yeah. There is a really funny joke throughout it where... The gangsters, the Antwerp, tried to teach him how to swear. Yeah. And he can't say it properly. So it's like, motherfucker. And he goes, fuck mother. <laughs> yeah. And then when he's robbing the car, down, it's like, out of the car, fuck mother. <laughs> yeah. But I think with this unofficial like trilogy of Blomkamp films, I kind of noticed like a recurring trend throughout. More so with that uh, Copley's characters in that they all have like this idea of humanity attached to them. Like in Vicus, it's about like him slowly losing that humanity. In... Uh, but also finding it yeah <laughs> in Elysium he's completely absent of any form of humanity he's just a horrible nasty piece of work 
and this but he chap- cooks with a samurai sword that is true <laughs> so at least he's cool and he sings nursery rhymes as well which is, uh, and then Chappie is like the restoration of that humanity like he becomes like a, almost like a a conscious being yeah towards the end I, I, I think Chappie was very misunderstood and Blomkamp has gone on record to say that he was very unsatisfied both with Elysium and Chappie he feels like he had the right story there but he kind of fucked it up when he was yeah yeah. I, mean, I saw that with Elysium yeah yeah, Elysium, Elysium's like a B minus, like a, and, it, yeah. and it could be an A, and I think that's why he's annoyed yeah. about. See it. me after class. <laughs> Chappie is is sort of one of those movies which is like Chappie was never going to be like a massive mainstream success. It's called Chappie. Yeah, yeah. It, it's really kind of goofy. There's but a moment. It's definitely a cult movie in a there, great way. There's a moment that's like a perfect metaphor for that, where it's Dev Patel's character because he is the one who wants to make a droid that is more like a human that can read uh, poetry and write and paint. And he's pitching that idea to Sigourney Weaver, who's, I think, filmed her scenes in like two days. <laughs> but she's the head of a weapons facility company. And he goes to pitch that idea to her. And she says, you do realize you just came into the CEO of a weapons facility looking to pitch a droid that can paint and write poetry. And it's almost like a metaphor for the film. It's like yeah. people want to see destruction with robots. They want to see like lasers and gunfire. But they don't want to see like a story that's more about, mm. I don't know, something coming alive and something kind of blossoming. Mm. I really like Bomb Camp as a visionary, but I, I sort mm. of feel like he, he'd rather be doing those like weird shorts on YouTube. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, we talk a little bit about those God things. They're, I think yeah. they're pretty funny. <laughs> or it's like Shadow Copley is playing God and he's got this butler who's played by the guy uh, Cope, Jason, Cope. Jason Cope from District 9. Cop and Copley. <laughs> and he basically has this table and you see like in one of them it's like Serengeti and you see all these like so cavemen, I guess. Yeah, Neanderthals. Who, yeah, Neanderthals, and it, he's just like watching them, and they're like, "Oh, he's do, they're doing a little rain dance. They're doing a little rain dance. Put some water on them. Put some water <laughs> on them." And then he does that, and it, it, it kind of looks amazing because it begins with a very close up on the table, and it looks like you're actually in the, you know, the time. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. it pans out, and it's in like a room, like God's <laughs> room, but um, like a giant board, like a miniature board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he's like a really kind of like. He's like a kid god because he's like, oh, look at them dance. Look at them dance. Oh, give them a little rain. Give them a rain. <laughs> Send the plague. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, which kind of plague, sir? Jason. And he opens up a box and he's like, oh, there we go. And just chucks it onto the board. Yeah, and then there's one where it's like the city as well and they're both really good. Yeah, and there's, a, there's a really funny moment where like he's, the butler is like questioning him. It's like, do you want to, why would you want to put a typhoon on a, on a he makes like one of the towers yeah. go on fire and he's like, send in the typhoon. It's like, why would you put a typhoon on a fire? And he goes, I created this universe and many other universes on a Saturday when I had nothing else to do. Yeah. <laughs> do you think he's trying to say anything with that, those short films or is it just? I think he's just saying like God, God works is, in mysterious ways. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because I think there's a bit in the thing where he's like, set that building on fire. Butler's like, why? He's like, I just want to see what they do. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so will we go into um, some of the roles that Shadow Copy got after District 9 because yeah. pretty soon he gets the A-team which was a childhood dream of his yeah I looked into it and I found out that his parents wouldn't let him watch the A-team growing up <laughs> and he would either watch it at a friend's house or he would wait till they fell asleep and got a tape recorder and would like record the audio for it <laughs> And when he got the role, he first called his mum and said, this is my way of getting back to you. <laughs> his mom was like, a pity Copley. <laughs> yeah, he plays Howling Mad Murdoch, who's like the vehicle specialist, specialist slash, slash madman mm. and member of the four-man A-team. Just introduced jump-starting an ambulance with a defibrillator, so you know that he's howling mad. Mm. <laughs> it's a weird movie. 
Because it's like one of those like maybe six, seven out of ten kind of things or C plus, yeah. whatever. Four popcorns out of six, whatever <laughs> rating you choose to ascribe. There was a level of apprehension about it because like I think based on the first trailer mm. with some of the CGI and all the people kind of thought it would have been this year's uh, G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra. Yeah, yeah. But I actually think that there was a great deal of effort put into it. Like, Yeah, I do too. I think it's a very fun movie where the G.I. Yeah. Joe films weren't Carnahan's um, <laughs> okay he's not that bad yeah, yeah I think it's the story good. Yeah. if anything like the interplay between the guys in the A-team is great yeah. and the performances are really good but I think it's just the kind of double crossing element and then yeah. you were playing me and I was playing you and you were doing this yeah, and all that the, there's far too many villains like there's the guy in the black polo shirt yeah uh, who you never really believe is like you believe he might be a mafia hitman, but not like a, a special forces soldier. Mm. As Patrick Wilson and then Jessica Biel, kind of. And then there's the uh, general that double crosses them, and it's like, okay, you need to lose at least two of them. Isn't Sean yeah. Hamm in it as well? At the very end, very yeah. end. Yeah. Like, yeah. All I remember about the A team, I, I remember liking it. Is there's a scene with the tank where <laughs> a tank is falling from the sky, yeah. and they have to keep shooting it. Yeah, that bit was good. And there's a bit where Shadow Copley sings, "You spin me right round," when he's like on Hold the chopper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So is Kobe good enough? I think so, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, uh, the ma- majority response, I looked into a couple reviews that came yeah. out and a lot of them highlighted his performance. Yeah. And even the guy who originally played him in the series, Dwight Schultz, who he had a blog and he wrote saying that he perfectly encapsulated everything yeah. that was great about Halle Mad Murdoch. Mm. This idea of that his insanity, it varies. Like they don't know. There's this kind of recurring story throughout. Is like, is he insane or is he just putting it on? Yeah. And uh, because for some reason he's able to do accents, he can inhabit characters. Yeah, he yeah. like puts on different personas. He does like the Braveheart <laughs> impersonation. Yeah, point. yeah. And then there's another bit of a security checkpoint. He knows Swahili. Yeah, <laughs> but it's never brought but up. He's again. dressed as a rabbi. Yeah, because <laughs> they mix up the passports between him and B. A. Baracus, yeah. and then he they suspect he's the one who can speak Swahili. And then there's like this: Oh, is he going to be able to do it? And he perfectly speaks Swahili. Yeah, he's like, you speak Swahili? What? And you don't? Yeah. <laughs> or when he's introduced at the start, and he's like. He stitches a he stitches up B.A. Baracus's wound into the shape of a lightning bolt, <laughs> and uh, uh, Liam Neeson finds him and he's like, "Are you Murdoch?" And he's like, "I'm a ranger, baby." <laughs> and Bradley Cooper just goes, "I'm worried." <laughs> There's that great bit afterwards when they escape from the hospital, and there was a bit that did kind of cause a bit of tension amongst fans where they crushed the van. There's an iconic oh, van. Yeah, they yeah. drop like a something, a bit of debris on it, and the van gets destroyed. And B.A. Baracus is freaking out. And he's yeah. like, you destroyed my van. How dare you? And he goes, you can't park there. It's a handicapped zone. <laughs> <laughs> Why is he meant to be from in the movie? Uh, like he's like the South, South American Ameri- South. Yeah. Like, yeah. Hey, y'all. And then he, he does his South African accent at one point because yeah. he's disguising himself as a South African cameraman. <laughs> yeah. And then he does a British accent. Scottish. Scottish. He does a Braveheart impression. I think that's all four. Yeah. yeah. It's a shame because with that much going for it, like you'd expect it to do decent at the box office. Mm. But it wasn't a hit. Like, and it, it didn't make enough money for there to be interest in a sequel mm. and Joe Carnahan they asked him someone asked him on Twitter are you going to make another one and he literally said didn't make enough and it was just three dollar signs <laughs> <laughs> um, will we talk about old boy uh, yeah I'm uh, just going to go to the bathroom you guys go ahead <laughs> <laughs> a Spike Lee joint <laughs> yeah a Spike Lee's um, 2013 I think remake of Spar- Spike Lee arthritic joint <laughs> <laughs> Do you know it's actually he it doesn't old boy doesn't begin with a Spike Lee joint it begins with a Spike Lee film he purposely took it out because Spike he Lee was very unhappy yeah. of had the studio because he wanted it to be three hours long and they trimmed it down to a nice toasty hundred minutes 
Oh, maybe I will watch it then. <laughs> well, hey, Three-hour-old boy sounds worse than a hundred-minute-old boy. But you've both seen the original, have you? Yeah. Yeah. It's a classic. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's unreal. I saw it in the cinema, I think, last year, and I was like, wow. Maybe the best movie uh, ever made. Still blo- mind-blowing, yeah. yeah. Like, it's it's subtlety and nuanced are, like, what really drives it. But um, this, I, I said, like, this in my letterbox review, like, this has all the subtlety of a hammer to the head. Yeah, you had a really like, good point. We were talking about how it does everything but, like, bigger and, like, yeah. more badass. You so, know? like, the original gist is there's this guy uh, in this one it's Josh Brolin's Joe Doucette and he's a I think he's like a banker he's like works in like money but he's a very corrupt guy like he's he's very uh, absent from his family and all that and for no reason he gets imprisoned for in the original it was 15 years yeah. in this it's 20 years and then he gets, gets released nice even, nice even zero at the end of it <laughs> he gets released and then he goes down a, a rabbit hole of conspiracy maybe there's someone linked to his past who ends up being uh, Adrian played by Charlotte Copley it's really sad to say, but Charles O'Copley is not good in this at all. Yeah, it's, it's really so bad. It's really, really I, bad. I really like him as an actor, but like, I don't know what he was doing or what happened during production. And I think there's a, an interview with Josh Brolin that just sums it up where it's like, you know, Charles O'Copley, he, he went for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird because usually I think the more crazy couple is allowed to go, like it's usually better for yeah. the movie. But there's, because it's a remake, it's trying to do something like, a little bit new with the story, a reinterpretation, <laughs> and he's his choice or Spike Lee's choice, I guess, was to make like the bad guy like more outwardly insane and more like outwardly villainous, and it's just way less interesting. And British, that, and British <laughs> for some reason, which never really makes that much sense. Uh, way less interesting than the original's villain, who like horrible, but like you can read him as being like a tragic figure, you yeah. know. And also like Copy's like unintentionally funny and it's just like when you're touching on the topics that old boy touches on, like you, you can't be funny, <laughs> you yeah, know, unintentionally yeah. funny, yeah. you know. I think I, I looked into an interview with if there was any like insight or any kind of understanding as to why he made the choice that he made with that character and he said, there's one interview I found on IMDb where he said he almost played him like a, a sad little boy trapped in an adult's body and there are moments where I can kind of see that coming to fruition but do you know that they were like he goes to his like loft and then he gives him the reasons as to why he imprisoned him and all that in the original old boy it was an incestuous relationship yeah. between the brother and sister in this it's between the father uh, Adrian's character and his sister and then he goes you saw I saw your father with your sister and he goes they were fucking yeah <laughs> you're like Ugh. and, and then the bit where he goes to visit um, his friend after he, he hears him on the phone he calls his sister a whore and then he goes, you called her a whore. He's like, you called her a whore. <laughs> He's like straggling with like fiber wire. I could see that working, like being like playing a character as if they're a child. Mm. I'm watching The Great right now, the TV show, and like Nicholas Holt is playing Emperor Peter, yeah. like a 10 year old kid. And yeah. it works really well. But the whole thing is threading that needle between light and dark. It's like from the writer, the favorite. Whereas Oh Boy is, is so grim. Yeah, and then you have this guy showing up, like acting like a psychopath, yeah. and it, and not, and it just kind of throws the balance off the movie a little bit. Like he's just, he's just like really preening, really shrieky, not pleasurable to watch. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. don't know. It's almost because I've only recently like started watching Spike Lee's films. Like I watched um, Do the Right Thing, and she's got she's got to have it, and um, The Five Bloods, and I really got an idea of like him as an auteur, like his use of dolly shots and all that. And there's moments where you can see that like creeping in. Like there's one really awkwardly placed like dolly shot of Josh Brolin walking through the city, and you're like, "Oh yeah, Spike Lee made this," yeah. like, which you would instantly forget if no one told you or it didn't say at the start a Spike Lee film, you'd forget that he made it. Yeah, it is like the case study for why you shouldn't remake a Korean film yeah, because yeah. it it kind of 
in a way disregards everything that was great about the first and it's trying to say oh you don't need to watch this like we you have our old boy and like you see the promotional materials like the ending will really catch you off guard and you go that's because it's the ending for the 2003 mm-hmm. one yeah I can't wait for uh, Parasite as Spike Lee joined. Yeah. <laughs> so that in the Parasite with Mark Ruffalo, directed by Adam McKay. Like, <laughs> oh, do you want to shoot God. me in the head? Um, Why? <laughs> yeah, there's something about old boy setting in South Korea as being sort of a mystical and fairy tale like. Yeah. Maybe ju- it's it's because it's we're watching it from like a Western perspective yeah. and like we don't know the place. But setting it in New York, you're like, this wouldn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it really just drains the magic out yeah. of it. And it, and it's and the remake goes into all the stuff about like we find out about the guy who ran the place where they kidnapped him like the hotel yeah. and you're like okay really <laughs> we're, get, we're yeah. getting it we're yeah. getting into the bureaucracy of this <laughs> yeah. and the one the iconic like one shot hammer sequence in this it feels like something you'd see in Street Fighter because you have all like the goons like, waiting on the side for their <laughs> turn to jump in and fight whereas in the other one it was more it's just chaotic and falling over each other and yeah. Yeah. amazing it, it looks like Daredevil in the Spike Lee one it like, does it's yeah. like we made it look like cool but the fact that they tried to make it look cool makes it less cool yeah, because yeah, in the yeah. original it's just literally like what would it look like if a, a guy and it doesn't who, stay in the hallway yeah like a guy who's not that fit but pretty big yeah. fighting a corridor full of people with a hammer yeah. like, and it, it feels like that would feel like and like it's too choreographed in the remake yeah, like, yeah. Hmm. the whole thing is like it, everything is just off whack in it hmm. yeah uh, will we go on to um, open graves go yeah for sure it, go yeah. for it put your gun down tell him to put his gun down Lucas, tell please. him to put his gun Lucas, down Lucas please is this your house? Huh? Whose house is this? Yeah, do you, any of you watch this? I watched the trailer. Yeah. I intended <laughs> to watch a good it. reason. I intended to watch it and then I watched The Hollers instead. You watched The Hollers? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the terrible. Why did you watch The Hollers? Jobs. I don't know. I just wanted to, you know. Because it's John Krasinski, right? Yeah. A, a pre yeah. A Quiet Place. And pre A Quiet Place, John Krasinski is not the John Krasinski we know now as a writer and director. Wow. We're going to do 40 minutes on The Hollers, but I'm going to okay. talk about Open Grave. <laughs> Um, yeah, Open Grave is interesting because it's like this little nifty kind of genre thriller that's a little underdone by Copley being miscast again. Because really? he, he plays this guy who wakes up in a pit full of um, dead bodies with no memory of how he got there. And he flees the scene and breaks into this nearby house and is met at gunpoint by a group of these terrified strangers. And they're all suffering from memory loss. And like suspicion gives way to violence as the group starts to piece together clues about their identities. It seems very Stephen King-ish. Yeah, it's... Uh, like even that idea of that image of just in the body with all the corpses, mm, this yeah. man waking up and not knowing who he is, like that does feel very yeah. like, in the vein of And it's Stephen. a little bit Hitchcockian. And like it, it's a strong premise that I think builds into like a fairly engrossing, if cheap and a little bit darkly lit and kind of grim looking movie. Mm that plays with audience expectation and what the film ultimately re- reveals itself to be is this unique take on you know a well-trodden horror subgenre mm. that's it like I think like Colby for the most part is playing a character who is a blank slate like someone with no recollection of who he is and there are parts where he, he starts to have fragmented visions of his past that suggest he's not a good person and Colby is good at conveying the confusion and fear of that however they're a bit few and far between and like for the most part he's stuck playing a fairly muted character one that doesn't really feel like a good fit for Copley who often shines playing these like big characters whether that be in a comedic way or in a villainous way Hmm. and he's doing like a straight American accent and I don't know how it compares to like the A-team but like it's it's, he's playing like a it's very like midwestern like generic American Hmm. accent and I feel like the effort he's putting into making like dialect work sort of zaps him of his natural charisma a little bit and it was the same thing with his um, PlayStation Network TV series Powers, which I feel like I'm the only person in the world <laughs> to have watched. 
PlayStation where, Network had a streaming service. Yeah, it was really bad. the only person to have watched it. It got two seasons, didn't it? It did get two yeah. seasons. Uh, where he's really boring and not too. And, oh, that's um, and I, I think like it's telling that a shattered copy on Elysium presented an American, an Eastern European, and a British version of Kruger, his character, to Neil Blomkamp before they agreed that Kruger would be from mm. his home country. Mm. And another thing as well, I found that he drew inspiration from, I think it was the South African president, Paul Kruger. And he also based it off this idea of these sleeper agents or these mercenaries who have to go behind enemy lines and how they become psychologically wounded as a result. Mm, yeah. And another funny thing is I found that Kruger is also used as a, it's used to describe a gold coin in South Africa. And I would argue that he is the gold in Elysium. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I imagine that bomb camp realized that like, no, nah, he needs to be South African. Like, you yeah. Need, that's, yeah. that's his. You need his, that madness. Yeah, he, that's his power, you know. Hello, little child. Would be to sing to you. And he starts singing the. <laughs> what is kind of interesting about um, King or uh, Open Grave is that it's directed by this guy Gonzalo Lopez Gallego, who mm. made this really good, really like mean thriller called King of the Hill or King of the Mountain. It's called in some other territories about this guy who gets caught in the wilderness and um, people uh, like a sniper keeps shooting at him, and the whole mm. movie is him just like running through the desert, and you never really find it, or you do find out who the shooter is, but the whole thing is like, what, why is this happening to him? Yeah. Mm. And then he went to America and has kind of just made like janky horror oh, genre yeah. movies because he made, remember Apollo 13? No. <laughs> that found footage movie on the moon. It rings very... Or no, no, Apollo 18. Oh, okay. Apollo 18. No, I don't remember that either. <laughs> he, no. It like came out in cinemas like, and it was like, it got terrible reviews. Okay. And that was he's, a found footage. Was found footage movie on the moon with astronauts. And it's like, they went to the moon. They didn't come back. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was the, the aliens were moon, the moon rocks were actually aliens. It sounded really bad. But then he just made a remake. He, he made a, a straight-to-DVD sequel to Backdraft, the Robert De Niro oh, firefighter wow. movie. And you're like, this guy was really good. Mm. Um, will we talk about Hark- Harcourt Henry? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Harcourt Henry. This is like your jam. Um, yeah, I really have a soft spot for Harcourt Henry. I yeah. think it's really good. Um, I know it's not everyone's cup of tea. Hey, listen, or... you gave me a migraine. What can I say? <laughs> Didn't it's, watch it because it's... I always get migraines. Not not everyone's cup of tea or not everyone's kind of Red Bull. <laughs> I had to calm down by watching the Grand Budapest Hotel. You had to calm down by watching the hollers. <laughs> yeah. But um, I showed my dad a clip of the highway chase sequence in Harcourt yeah. Henry because it's this fantastic scene where it's like them hopping from like trucks to bikes. Yeah. And my dad literally and he got means, sick. He said no. <laughs> he just said no. <laughs> but it was made by this uh, Russian filmmaker who's also, his name is uh, Ilya Naishuler. And he was also the frontman for a Russian indie rock band called Biting Elbows. He directed a music video for one of their songs, Bad Motherfucker, mm. which caught the attention of Darren Aronofsky, along with a couple other famous people. And then Shalta Copley got attached. And he said that the reason he was drawn to the project was that it had a very grassroots style of filmmaking yeah. to it that started from scratch and working its way up because like with Alive and Joburg becoming District 9 it is very unique but it's it's a clear homage to like video games and shit yeah, and all. Yeah. it's like a very hyper violent version of Mirror's Edge yeah yeah, in a way and the shootout sequences are stunning yeah. and the like car chase stuff is really good I think some of the close combat stuff is a bit difficult to digest in terms of like I can see where that's where the migraine because mm. you said you couldn't enjoy I got half an hour into it and I was I was watching it with my brother and I was like Sam do you want to keep watching this he was like no <laughs> like, okay we'll pick something else but I think one of the shining lights in that film is Charlotte Copley because he essentially plays he plays later revealed to be this scientist who is injured in because Henry is a cybernetic soldier mm. but 
uh, he doesn't have a voice because they didn't finish him on time and the entire film is t- told through his POV mm. so it's a first person shooter stretched out to 90 minutes and Charlotte Copley essentially is that person you meet in a video game he's your guide or your yeah, kind of AI yeah. tells you to go to different spots and all that or gives you equipment what I, all I remember from it is that he's constantly dying like he gets shot or he's yeah. set on fire and then he just pops back up so he's in a simulation else. And he inhabits different bodies that he's made. But the thing is, all these bodies are different personas. So, like, there's one that's, like, a almost like Vickers. He's, like, in a sweater vest going, oh, my, what what do we do now? And then he's a punk rock guy. Hey, man, let's go fucking nuts. Then he plays, like, a jolly good sir, like, mm, a soldier. Yeah. I sound nuts, like, describing all that these. Sounds really, <laughs> that sounds really good. And he has a ball playing, though, all of them. And it really shows off his range yeah. as an actor. I think my favourite out of all of them would have to be... There's one of the characters he plays is this uh, homeless man. <laughs> and then he plays another one that's like a hippie. Yeah. He's like, hey man, free love, man. They should do like Split with Shrattle Copley. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> right. it'd, be like, it'd be like one of those Eddie Murphy car- uh, films where he plays nine characters. Me Dave. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they should remake Me Dave with Shrattle Copley. Yeah. Uh, but um, the fact that he gets this opportunity to play different characters or different personas and all that it really is like a testament to his ability and he's gone on record to say that it was the most challenging film that he's ever had to make not just because of like doing all the different characters but just because of the nature of the film yeah. the stunt work mm, yeah. and um, I think the record for that film <laughs> in terms of stunts the total amount of injuries for the cast and crew was five stitches and one chip tooth oh that's well, not too bad, bad. yeah also, like some of other, like like Old Boy, it wasn't a success, mm. and I think it went on record to be the second largest third weekend drop of all time, oh. behind Eddie Murphy's Meet Dave. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> yeah, I looked it up. Too. No way. <laughs> wow, what a coincidence! <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> um, we talk about the holler. Is he gonna do it? Yeah. Oh, What's uh, a holler? Yeah. A holler out of something. A holler. Well, it's, first of all, it's spelt like dollar, but with a H. Oh. Uh, it's a family name. It's about the family, the Hollers. John Krasinski plays John Holler, who's a struggling New York graphic novelist who was told by his girlfriend, Rebecca, who's played by Anna Kendrick, that his mother has been diagnosed with a brain tumour. And so he goes back to Ohio to support her and his family during the operation. His dad is played by Richard Jenkins and his brother is Ron, who's Charlotte Copley. But yeah, he's the older brother of the Holler family. Ron struggling with his divorce five years after he got divorced (laughs) because his wife is um, remarrying a youth pastor called Reverend Dan who's played by Josh Groban. Oh. Uh, all of these elements should work. Yeah, it sounds yeah. really good. Uh, he still lives in his parents' house. He's kind of like that surly waster of an older brother in an already dysfunctional family. The problem with the movie is that it has like big network TV pilot energy. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's ni- it's just under 90 minutes and none of it feels very artistic in a cinematic way and all the characters feel like they need at least four seasons for them to get to any kind of emotional resolution. And for all that to happen in 90 minutes, it feels like cheap and bad. Ron is like a worse version of Steve Carell's character in Little Miss Sunshine. Oh, oh. okay. Because obviously, like the character in Little Miss Sunshine has all these things going for him in that he's like suicidal and depressed and gay. and That makes him an interesting character. And obviously the way he's played is very good. But it's a very muted performance by Charlotte Copley. And he's divorced. So what? So is everyone. <laughs> Who cares? Yeah. It's, it's, a dra- it's an indie dramedy. Give me something more. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it feels like it's trying to imitate Little Miss Sunshine as well because it was like, uh, it's an indie dramedy with like big name stars, but it's, and lots of character actors in the mix as well. And it played at Sundance and 
it's like one of those things that was like chasing the dragon that was Little Miss Sunshine and it just didn't work like so many other movies. And is there no glimpse of like the filmmaker John Krasinski would turn into with A Quiet Place? Because like, yeah, I know Quiet Place isn't the like most amazing movie, but mm. it's very good and in a kind of Shyamalanian way. Like yeah. it's like movie magic. The twist really, is that no. it's a, it twists it's a prequel to the movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. What's that out in the yard? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, free fire. Let's uh. do it. I'm not running a fucking pizza delivery service. Do you want the weapons or you don't want the weapons? Look. They assault rifles. You said rifles. Justine, you said rifles, doll. They're fucking rifles. What do you want? So set in Boston, 1978, uh, meeting in a deserted warehouse between the IRA, a South African gun dealer, fronted by Kobe, and the two's go-between turns into a shootout and a game of survival. And essentially the whole movie is an extended firefight and uh, director Ben Wheatley has talked about becoming jaded by you know massive CGI blockbuster spectacle and said he wanted to make something like the 70s and 80s movies he liked where things were a, on a bit more of a human level and more personal level. And I think he succeeded with Apon. Yeah, like, absolutely. Like in... Age of Ultron or whatever, like when they dr- literally like pick up a country and drop it on another country, yeah. like you don't care, but you really yeah. care when Michael Smiley accidentally puts his hand on like a dirty needle. Oh God, yeah. don't remind me. <laughs> oh. Or even the bit where like they chuck the wrench at like Jack Rayner's fingers. And yeah, he's like, <laughs> Ooh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's another thing as well. Like the cast for this incredible. Yeah, the my cast favorite this film ensemble. Is absolutely incredible. Like Killian Murphy, Brie Larson, Army Hammer, uh, Michael, Michael Smiley, Smiley Sam, Sam Riley, Riley. Sam unbelievable. Uh, Noah Taylor. Great, really uh, good. And Shelter Copley, who nearly single-handedly steals the show. It's between him and Army Hammer, in my opinion. Mm, I think Army yeah. Hammer is fantastic. It's you fantastic. smell like perfume. It's beard oil. But uh, I love, like, within meeting um, Shelter Copley's character for the first time, the first thing you hear is that Vernon was misdiagnosed as a child genius <laughs> when he was younger. Yeah. And then what is he actually? He's an international asshole. Yeah. <laughs> so you have um, this idea of this character who's bigged up to be something yeah, more than yeah, he is, yeah. and the, he very clearly cares about his status. Mm. And then this idea of like, I think with all the characters, like I, Copley, Copley said um, it was more of a, a deconstruction of the male ego. Like in terms of these characters are all yeah. holding mm. heads yeah, and they're yeah, all yeah. the real cause for the shootout. They're, it's very kind of minuscule. In a Pretty way. much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like this girl uh, gets bottled by uh, one of the characters. I think it's uh, Sam Riley's character. Her cousin is there, is Jack Rayner's character. And they get in a spat about it and it all just blows up from there yeah I think what does really well is it, with those contained thrillers like there's always like a worry like how much can it keep my interest in the one location but I mm. think it does a really good job and like Wheatley was very sure that when he was designing the layout of the warehouse like he designed it on Minecraft like, <laughs> so he could like get an idea of like the blueprints yeah. that it would make sense that each character would be in this spot like they wouldn't magically yeah. end up in another place like it all felt very real Yeah, it almost yeah. feels like an elaborate kind of it almost feels like a, a play in, in some yeah. way yeah yeah, what I love about Copley in the movie is that, like, he's sexist. I don't love that he's sexist. <laughs> Let me continue my point. He says mean things about the Irish. Like, he's totally unscrupulous in his mm. business practices. Like, even before they, like, start shooting up, he's already, like, fucked them over business-wise yeah. with the guns. And yet, he's so ridiculous. Like, he's so ridiculous, he becomes funny. Well, he walks a really thin line between, like, oh, like I understand how annoying it would be to be around this person, mm. but also I can't wait to see what he does next. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know how he does it, but it's, like, really good. I think it's probably the suit is amazing. Yeah. The hair, the, the he gets fake sh- mustache. He gets shot, and Brie Larson's like, oh, no, it was mostly the shoulder pad. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, yeah, the mustache, the kind of jewelry, like, just, the, like, the ridiculous things. All the stuff, like, of him trying to, like, barter his way out of, yeah. like, 
the situation. Yeah. But there's just something about him kind of like owning his character's horribleness yeah. in a really great way, especially when the theme of the movie is sort of about like masculinity and like they had, all these people could have so much, like so many chances to just like put down their guns and walk away and they continually yeah, like don't. Yeah, yeah. And like even like the whole point of the Brie Larson character is literally just like, oh, man. <laughs> but she's even, everyone's great in it. She's yeah. like a great character too. Yeah. 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 I'll say before we go into the plot of Last Days of American Crime, whatever Michael Pitt is selling in this movie, I'm buying. Really like his God performance. bless his soul he's trying. He's really God working his him. little butt off. He put himself out there. Do you want to tell us like what it's about? It's like a mix between The Purge and Den of Thieves, but not as good as those already kind of mediocre movies. <laughs> it's set in the future um, where the police are going to, in America, are going to release a signal that's basically going to prevent crime. And they're going to release it in a week. And Edgar Ramirez plays this guy who... He's had a brother who's been killed in prison and he's been recently like kind of burnt by like a rival mob or whatever. And he teams up with Michael Pitt, who has got this old kind of baggage by himself, and they're gonna rob a place and it's gonna be the last crime in American history. And it's all gonna it's gonna take place like on the day where this signal is going to come in. Mm. It sucks. <laughs> it's already like a sweaty premise to get to because you're like, okay, we have to establish that America has been overrampant by crime. Okay. Then they're gonna release a signal that's gonna stop crime. Mm. But then these people are gonna do a bank heist before that signal kicks in and you're like okay alright I'm already and then it's it's two hours like 20 minutes like it takes so long to like set up the premise that's so confusing it like keeps like flashing backwards and forwards in time really just hard to like understand what's happening on like a scene by scene level and then already then it cuts to like this Shrapnel Copley character it's, it's like feels like it's trying to do like the Dennis Haysbert thing in Heat mm. or the cop in Sicario on you know, the Mexican yeah, cop that yeah. keeps coming back to where it's and it's kind of the thing in all these like crime epics which sort of either deepen the themes of the movie and kind of generate tension because you know that these two things are that seem separate are going to like align at yeah. some point. There's also a subplot regarding the wave that will stop the people from committing crimes, but the police who go on duty have the option to get a neural blocker implanted into them that once activated will prevent them from being affected by the wave, mm. meaning they're free to act however they want. But with Copley, why is he in this? Yeah, I want to talk about that why? because... Like Charlene was asking me, like, is this movie pro cop or is it like anti cop? Because I was explaining like how mm. weird the movie yeah. was, and she mm. was, I was like, it's not about anything. Like, it, like asking that is like suggesting too much intelligence of it. I will say, I think they set up his character not terribly because he, he has this traumatic mm. event happen to him. Like a drug addict tries to rob the police station. For the drug reason. addict he kills mm. looks like the kind of character he should be playing. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's like this goatee going, yeah. where you going, man? Yeah, and he holds him at gunpoint and they have a fight which ends with Copley sh- shooting him in the face. And you think that would put him off crime fighting? But he returns to work early and is like, I want to do police work. Send me out, boss. And it's because like crime is going to be, like his job is going to be, you know, if you don't for him with yeah, this new yeah. signal mm. and you start like to wonder like what point is the movie making about like cops like especially following recent events in the US which mm. you know they probably weren't thinking about this when they were making yeah. the movie but you, you can't help but ask and like is the movie like saying that like Kobe's character is like those kind of policemen who like see their jobs and excuse for them to like go around with a gun and act cool and there's a reference to him having like a wife and a family yeah it's there's this moment where the cuts back to his apartment and he's he's probably living alone now at this point yeah, but yeah. he opens the fridge and then it does a thing where the 
photo of the wife and the kids and himself like are on the fridge but his head is just so badly photoshopped oh yeah yeah the <laughs> photo is like, terrible yeah yeah <clears throat> and it's like love you daddy and like their drawings yeah, on the fridge yeah, yeah. and then you have like all his awards like on the wall and the photos of him on duty these he are looks my like... awards mother that I won for cop <laughs> <laughs> he looks like the um, the night bus conductor from Harry Potter like with the, with the police outfit yeah, on like the yeah. hats like yeah. 10 times so you start to like get the sense like I'm not sure because crime was rampant in this movie I'm like were his family killed or but I think it's more that like he kind of prioritised his job over his kids is what you're meant to get yeah because his character does intersect one of our main characters the terribly written female character Shelby mm. who eats chokes before being killed uh, oh, a scene yeah. which leaves a bad taste apparently in, inadvertently because of real life events but then also because like you get a sense of like is that it like I wasted two hours and twenty minutes on like that and mm. like yeah. the movie needed for Copley to have like a lot more significance to the plot and be better defined as a character because like like again like it's like open grave like he's fine it's just like a very blank character and like I perceive him as being antagonistic because of what he does to Shelby at the end, but, like, mm. the performance doesn't really do enough to kind of code him that way. Yeah. And, like, the whole thing just left me feeling a bit, like, puzzled. I think my whole thoughts on the film can literally be summed up in my letterbox review, which I literally said, I started watching this at midnight and then realised an hour into it, it was actually two hours and 29 minutes in length. And mm. it's like, as I am writing this review, I'm still watching the film, so that should give you an interest <laughs> of where, <laughs> where my focus lies. I am tired. I want to go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> So it's kind of a bummer to end on America. It's the worst movie I've seen this year. Mm. and uh, Maybe 365 Days. Good. I, haven't, I didn't watch that. I don't. The bottom two for me are Spencer Confidential and Last Days of oh, American yeah. Crime. But Spencer Confidential is like... The Post Malone. A really lazy... is a really lazy movie. But like Last Days of American Crime is like a, a technically incompetent movie. <laughs> All right. Um, we'll wrap it up there. <laughs> um, please rate and review. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Uh, emails at I know that face pod at gmail.com. If there's someone you'd like us to cover on the show or you'd like to be on the show and you work in like media or films or podcasts, uh, follow us on Twitter at I know that face P1. Instagram at I know that face. Uh, thanks to Shani and Fernandez for running that. Andrew, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. Sean, anything to plug? Follow Cold Coffee Press. Uh, we have a Facebook page and an Instagram page. Or just follow me at Seanic the Hedgehog on Instagram. I post silly stuff. Perfect. Check out the Headstuff Films section. Um, a lot of cool articles going up there. If you haven't yet, check out our like our best TV of the year list so far. And on uh, that, I'll see you later. See you Bye bye. Bye. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.